we're back in that Atlanta courtroom in 2015. After eight long months, it's finally verdict day. And just so you know, this is part two of our story. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you should go back and listen to that one first. Otherwise, this probably won't make that much sense. Now, we're in the courtroom, and the judge starts by thanking the jury. All right, good afternoon, everybody. He's emotional. He's been emotional throughout the whole trial, in a way you don't often see in judges. I have never seen a jury that was more diligent. He's almost reduced to tears. I mean, notes, notebooks, taking notes every day. The teachers, rightfully so, they look nervous, sitting there waiting for the verdict. And whatever your verdict is, I'll defend it till I die. You know, whatever it is, I will defend it. Now the judge is ready. State versus Sharon Davis. The first teacher stands up next to their lawyer, head bowed. Verdict form. Count one, conspiracy to violate the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. Guilty. One by one, the teachers get up. State of Georgia versus Dana Evans. Count one, conspiracy to violate the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. 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 We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. Ten teachers found guilty on racketeering charges for cheating on standardized test scores. They have made their bed and they're going to have to lie and and it starts today. As the judge leaves, the teachers remain seated until law enforcement officers approach. The teachers are told to place their hands behind their backs. They take their jewelry off, valuables out of their pockets, and one by one, handcuffs are placed on their wrists. I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheap. On the last episode, we heard about the No Child Left Behind Act and how that started an era of high-stakes testing in public schools all around America. A movement of parents and political leaders, of voters and educators who are hungry for higher standards tougher accountability, and real choices. Schools were rewarded with money when they met their targets and punished with closure when they didn't. We talked about how this policy created a competitive market and put public schools under intense pressure. We heard how an Atlanta public school district was transformed by a radical new superintendent. First of all, I accepted the invitation to share with you the coming together of an entire community in Atlanta around a school system that was stagnant, stagnant, and is now being fixed. And then how people started to question her extraordinary results. This is just statistically almost impossible. Today, we're going to find out what really happened in those Atlanta public schools. And I'm not just talking about what the teachers were up to. This story is part of a wider conversation, a conversation in which we need to ask ourselves, who's actually at fault for all of this? The teachers? The people working in those schools? Or the guys at the top? The policymakers, politicians, and real estate developers? We pick up the story with Richard Hyde. He's a private investigator employed by the governor of Georgia, and he's trying to figure out how cheating happened in these schools. Finally, 
After weeks and weeks of trying, Richard thinks he's made a breakthrough with one of the teachers. I went by her classroom, and she was standing in the doorway. And she said, and to me, in hindsight, it was very exaggerated. Oh, I'm, I cannot talk to you. I don't know anything about anything. I just have nothing to say to you. To me, that was a red flag that I needed to meet with her privately. He's talking about Jackie Parks, a third grade teacher at Venetian Hills. And we set up a meeting with her and her lawyer here at the law firm in this room. And uh, she broke it open. Were it, and had it not been for Ms. Parks' honesty and wanting to, I guess, cleanse her soul, I don't think we would have figured out what was going on. What Ms. Parks told him that day was pretty stunning. And it, it was very emotional for, the, for these teachers, too. It was emotional. I mean, it, it, there were a lot of tears from these teachers. They were, they were risking it all talking to us. She'd been holding a secret for a long time. Too long, I suppose, because she opened the floodgates and just started talking to Richard. When she started, she couldn't stop. She told Richard that at the end of every school year, she'd prepare her students for the all-important exams. She'd work them hard, testing them again and again and again, drilling into them how important it was for them to do well. She knew in her head that if they didn't do well, her job was on the line, and the education department might close her school. She knew she had to meet her targets or else. The students took the test in May over the course of a week. Every afternoon after the students were finished, Ms. Parks would go to a classroom, close the door, then take old newspaper and stick it on the windows so no one could see inside. Then she'd wait. After a few minutes, a knock on the door. It was five more teachers. She let them in, turned the deadbolt, and they got to work. They took the completed test booklets that the kids had just filled in and changed the answers. Of course, they were careful. They didn't change all the wrong answers, just enough to take a student up a grade to make sure they met the state targets. They call these private meetings cheating parties. I don't know that it was jovial, but it was described as a party and they would have refreshments and whatnot. But what's even more strange is that Ms. Parks and her crew gave themselves a name, the chosen ones. They were the, the trusted ones that, that could be trusted to do the cheating and not tell. These chosen ones were all senior teachers. They never asked new teachers to cheat because that'd be too risky. It seemed well-planned and organized. Richard couldn't believe it, but he needed to know more. He knew he had to get some more confessions on tape, so he persuaded Jackie to wear a wire. I, I outfitted her with an audio recorder, and she would go and speak to different people and get it on, on the audio recording. Like, for me, this is crazy. I'm like, come on, man. You're asking a teacher to wear a wire? This is like a scene from Law & Order SVU. The first person Jackie spoke to was the testing coordinator at the school. 
She was the person in charge of administering the tests. She was also the assistant principal, so she had some power at Venetian Hills. And after a bit of questioning, she admitted, yeah, she was in on it. And it's kind of like an onion. You just keep peeling it back. And as Richard was peeling back the layers, he decided he needed to go after the big boss. I sent her in to meet with the principal of Venetian Hills. They met away from the school at a McDonald's. So there they were, in a McDonald's parking lot. The principal and her assistant. And get this, the tape recorder was in her purse. You just have to keep reminding yourself that these are upstanding members of the community and not hardened criminals. And sure enough, as they're sitting there in this McDonald's parking lot, the principal starts talking. She's going on and on about how there was no one to talk to and how it had taken over her life and how she prays every day about it. She was talking about the pressure and how this was making her ill and how terrible it was for her and her family. And over the next week or so, he learned that this whole operation had been driven from the principal's office. Sometimes the testing coordinator would put tests in tote bags and bring them to the principal's office. Together, they'd erase wrong answers. The principal was so worried about getting caught, she'd wear gloves in case she left fingerprints. At this point, Richard had the whole thing figured out. A map of how cheating had occurred in this one school. Once we got Venetian Hills wrapped up, once we had Ms. Parks, Ms. Monaire, and then the principal on video and audio recording confirming the cheating, we felt pretty good that we had probable cause to believe that there was widespread cheating. And so we started talking to people, and we started flipping them. People started telling us the truth. And he found out there was cheating going on all over the district. Small-scale cheating, large-scale cheating. At this one school in the city, the principal instructed his star teacher to break into the room where the tests were kept. They were supposed to be highly secure, and they were wrapped, security wrapped in plastic. This teacher would take a razor blade into the test room, cut the tests out of their sealed packets, and gave the copies to the teachers who used the advanced copies of the test to give the correct answers to the students at the school. So that, that was pretty bold, and that was a novel approach to the cheating, in my view. More and more, these stories were coming to light. We were getting more information every day of the cheating, so that the case was just expanding. And Richard says there was one reason he was able to crack this case. It was the people at the lowest part of the, of the pay scale that had the highest amount of integrity to finally tell the truth. Had it not been for those predominantly single mom teachers risking their careers, really, to tell the truth, we would not have been able to been successful with this investigation. But what happens when this investigation expands and starts to implicate teachers who maybe haven't done anything wrong at all? We'll hear from one of those teachers after the break. And so I was actually asleep on the couch, (laughs) taking a nap. And I got a phone call from my god sister. And I'm like, what are you talking about? 
Um, and she was just like that, you know, you all were found guilty. And I'm like, what? There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now we're a few months into Richard's investigation. We knew that we had cheating on a scale that none of us could imagine when we started the case. And so they decide they need to cast a wider net. So we went to Governor Purdue and asked for some assistance to do screening interviews by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. If Richard was going to investigate the entire district, he needed manpower. We call him the GBI. The Georgia Bureau of Investigations. This is serious. These are the dudes with their bulletproof vests and GBI in big yellow letters. A gun holster to their beige pants and big serious looking expressions on their faces. We handpicked 50 or 60 top shelf agents and we sent the agents out to do the screening interview of 2,000 or, or 2,500 folks. The GBI agents were going into schools all across the district, grabbing the staff one by one and asking them if they knew anything about the cheating. And suddenly things start to change. Before, you had Richard and a small team asking questions in a handful of schools. Now, there's this whole big team of law enforcement officers patrolling every school in the city with above average test scores. This was a huge operation. And just like with many big police investigations, it started to pull in people who maybe hadn't done anything wrong at all. People like Shani Robinson. How's little Amari doing? Between work and taking care of her two sons, Shani managed to find time to talk to me about how she came to be implicated in all of this. need to be placed on that gratitude I just expressed for, for taking the time to chat with us then. <laughs> now, before we hear Shani's story, we have to know a bit about the area and the school where she worked. A few miles south of downtown Atlanta, in an area called Mechanicsville, lies Dunbar Elementary. 
In the 1940s and 50s, Mechanicsville was a vibrant black community with several black-owned businesses and big homes. But to some, it was a little too vibrant. William Hartsfield, mayor of Atlanta from 1942 to 1962, the guy who they named Atlanta's airport after, he once said, Our Negro population is growing by leaps and bounds. The time is not too far distant when they will become a political force in Atlanta if our white citizens are going to move out and give it to them. So they decided to build a highway through the neighborhood, knocking down those homes and businesses, making the neighborhood poor, less desirable. From there, it was a steady decline. And that decline was felt most starkly in the areas where public schools were. Walk me through the environment and the atmosphere of the Atlantic public school system when you were a teacher? I liked the school that I was at. I got along with most of the staff. Um, as far as like my students and the um, my class, I work with students who you could tell came from struggling families. I remember a student who I found out um, was sleeping on the floor um, so I actually gave her mom some money to get their furniture out of storage. Um, sometimes I would bring snacks to school to make sure that the students who I knew didn't get enough food, didn't go without. The teachers, they played a lot of roles. You know, it wasn't just you were their teacher. It was like you were their counselor. You were their friend. You were their uh, parent. You were their nurse. You were, you know, you were a lot of things wrapped up in one. And I think maybe in other settings and more affluent areas, teachers don't have to deal with as much. You know, they're just able to kind of teach. So it's like on top of that, you have testing, you know, high stakes, standardized testing on top of all of that. The test we talked about earlier, the test that happened at the end of every year and piled pressure on the teachers who knew. If you didn't reach a target after a certain amount of years, your school could close. And so every year, Shani would prepare her students for these tests. Now she was teaching first graders. So that means these kids are about six or seven years old. And because they're so young, during the test, these kids would get bored or frustrated. Of course they would. I'm a grown man and I get bored and frustrated putting together these scripts every week. They doodle pictures over their test booklets and sometimes their writing became illegible. It's a protocol in the testing manual to erase stray marks or doodles off of your students' test booklets. Teachers were allowed to clean up their test booklets, make them presentable. Makes sense to me. The first year, all of the teachers were called into a library. The second year, we erased stray marks in a computer lab. Shani was in this computer lab with several other teachers, all working away, all erasing the stray marks. Since we had done it the previous year, I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. And we were in that room for about 20 minutes. So we hand our um, test booklets back to the testing coordinator and walk out of the door. As far as Shawnee was concerned, this was totally above board. She teaches at the school for another year before leaving to become a counselor. When one day she gets a call. Can you describe when you got that call and when you end up meeting with one of the agents? So I agreed to meet with one of the agents 
down the street from my house at a mall. It was a mall that was just, you know, like five minutes away. So Shani drives to the mall and waits in the parking lot. What is the deal with these parking lots? This is when she spots the guy and his partner calling her over. She gets in their car. And so the agent told me um, that there had been high levels of cheating in APS. And then he said, in your room specifically, they had done an erasure analysis and found that there were high levels of wrong-to-right erasures. And he said, can you explain this? And I said, no, I can't explain this. Wrong-to-right erasures? Basically, they're accusing her of cheating, changing the answers in the textbook. See, you have to remember, Shani is a year out of her teaching job at this point. So she's scrambling around trying to remember this stuff as best as she can. Then he pulled out a pre-written voluntary statement form that basically said, I didn't have any knowledge about cheating and that I didn't cheat and asked me to sign the form. And I signed. Now, what a lot of us mm-hmm. at the time, mm-hmm. I know. Mm-hmm. Come on, Shani. Come on. <laughs> Ooh, why you do that? You have to understand why I reacted this way. Put yourself in her situation. You're on your own. You're not even teaching anymore. And this state law enforcement agent is asking you to sign a pre-written, quote-unquote, voluntary statement form, and you don't have an attorney present. This seems pretty slick and suspicious to me, especially because this is a statement that can easily be used against her later. <laughs> I know, I know. It, no, it's, look, this is what I'm telling you. It wasn't just me. The, in, most of the staff, when, they, when the GBI agents came into the schools, there were no attorneys present, and they all signed the form. It sounds shady from the beginning. I mean, you, you meet them in, the, in a parking lot. Don't tell me, right. don't tell me it was an unmarked SUV. <laughs> well. See? I mean, here we have someone like Shani. On paper, she's pretty much a model citizen, college educated, never been in any trouble, decides to spend a few years helping out kids in school, and then becomes a counselor. Is it fair that she's caught up in this investigation? Is she about to become collateral damage, an innocent bystander caught up in the crossfire? Shani went away from this interview and tried to put it out of her mind. She was getting on with her new career, and she says she had no reason to believe she'd done anything wrong. Meanwhile, Richard's agents were busy working their way across the city. We took out a map and just targeting agents at various schools. Richard was back in his office with his colleagues, pouring through the interviews that these agents were bringing back to him every day. Literally pages and pages of notes, hours and hours of tape, trying to organize them into some kind of structure for their final report. I would be sitting here, and and where you are right now on the TV screen would be my computer screen. And Mr. Wilson would be to my left, and Mr. Bowers would be to my right. And it would be three or four in the morning. And we'd be I'd be writing, and they would be making comments, half asleep, drinking coffee, And then occasionally they would argue over something I had written. And there were several times where I thought, where I had to stand between Mike and Bob to keep them 
from fighting with one another. Bob kept saying we have to write a report that will stand the test of time. July 2011. That's when the report is released by Richard and his team. It was over 800 pages long. Cheating was detailed in over 40 schools across the district, and 178 educators, administrators, and managers were implicated. It stated, A culture of fear, intimidation, and retaliation has infested the district, allowing cheating at all levels to go unchecked for years. But while we've talked a lot about the teachers at the center of this case, what about the leadership? What about Beverly Hall, the superintendent who was for a long time seen as a hero, the woman who had turned around Atlanta school? It was clear to me the first time we met that she did not think much of the governor or the governor assigning us to, to do this case. And she flatly denied cheating was occurring. They did interview her, but she was surrounded by lawyers, and in the end, she didn't really tell them anything. They concluded that Dr. Hall either knew or should have known cheating and other misconduct was occurring in the Atlanta public school system. She, she refused to believe it. And in her mind, I think she probably convinced herself there was no cheating. This was one of the problems. While the teachers at the lower end of the pay scale were owning up to what had been going on, there was no sign that anyone above them was taking any responsibility. The teachers that did wrongdoing should be held accountable, but the tone is set from the top down. And when the top management of the school system says, we got to increase test scores and move the needle, no excuses, no exceptions, that's like telling the Atlanta Police Department street cops, we want you to go out there and make as many arrests as you can. No exceptions, no excuses. We need the numbers up. That's going to lead to pressure on the officers to perform, and it's going to lead to some shenanigans going on. The release of the report was a huge event. It caused a shockwave across the city. It led the news. Good morning, Chris. Quit by Wednesday or be fired. That's the ultimatum for almost 200 Atlanta educators, principals, and teachers implicated in the most far-ranging school cheating scandal in American history. 178 teachers accused of cheating. All of their names in life. And felony charges could also be on the way. A local prosecutor will meet later today with five teachers implicated in a so-called cheating party. But what was it like to be one of those teachers? especially when you say you have no idea you've done anything wrong. And what was happening to the schools where those teachers work? That's coming up after the break. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to yeah. bring something like this to life. And yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend <laughs> that I don't right Hold now. it in. Hold and our current faves. And Luffy must have his due. <laughs> and we agree on some things, but not on everything. I, Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. 
If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. So what happened when you when you saw the report? Can you describe when you first heard about it? The report came out, when was that? That was July of 2011. One of my coworkers actually called me on the phone and told me that there, there was a massive GBI report that had just been released. Her coworker was calling to tell her Shawnee's name was in the report. I immediately got on my computer because I was thinking, no, like this can't be. And pulled up that report and found, I had to find my school and read through the entire report from my school. And it was true. There it was. Shawnee's name in black and white. The report had called her a cheat. But why? Remember Shawnee's story about the kids being messy in the test books and Shawnee and her colleagues rubbing out the doodles and the stray marks? Turns out, one of her co-workers told the investigators that when Shawnee said they were erasing stray marks, that was code for cheating. Shawnee couldn't believe it. Here she was in this report, and she hadn't done anything wrong. She quickly realized this was serious. The report was everywhere now, and the governor was already talking about criminal convictions. Although he made clear, if you own up to it, you'll be fine. We're not out to criminalize any educator as long as they cooperate and are forthcoming with their testimony. And that's exactly what happens. The DA offers immunity to any teachers who admit to cheating straight away. And over 80 of them do. They straight up said, we did it. But what about the teachers that didn't admit to it? Teachers like Shani. She says she didn't do it. And now she's being told to fess up or you can be in big trouble. Cover-up is the most uh, heinous crime to me. If you're honest and forthcoming, I would plead for leniency. I mean, this seems like an impossible situation. Admit to something you didn't do and risk jail time, or make up a story and walk free. China decides, no. I'm going to fight this. And then a year later, she hears the news. She's being charged along with 35 others with racketeering. The maximum sentence, 20 to 40 years. When I think of racketeering and and RICO charges, I'm thinking of like some super duper, like heavy drug cartel, drug lord, mobster, you know, so... When you heard racketeering and RICO, what did you understand about that? I understood the Sons of Anarchy. That was my basis <laughs> for racketeering. That was all I knew. And I was thinking, surely they are not comparing me. <laughs> they are not comparing me to working for some cartel. Um, so I didn't know much about it at all. I, I knew it had to deal with money. 
but I didn't know. And I knew it was a serious crime. Um, but I was even more confused after hearing that as to how I would get caught up in something like that. And I've never received one penny. As we heard in the last episode, the No Child Left Behind Act and this new age of punishment and reward in education meant that teachers were entitled to financial bonuses if they met their targets. What the prosecution was arguing was that the teachers knew this. They knew they would get money if their kids did well on their tests. And so they cheated to make themselves richer. The accusations that were levied against you all were that you cheated and the reason you did were for, you know, monetary incentives, right? Correct. Like you, get, you get some, you get money as, as a bonus. As far as the 35 people involved, we're talking about, you know, maybe like $3,500. I didn't get any money because my, at my school, third through fifth grade did not meet the targets. And so n- no one at my school got any money. We didn't get any money. Like, you know, we're, we're not real racketeers. <laughs> we're not criminals. This is what Shani kept telling herself. I'm not a criminal. But what's crazy is around the same time, the state of Georgia had just been awarded $400 million from Obama's Race to the Top grant. This was a federal program that rewarded progress in schools. And a big part of that progress was measured on test scores. Did the governor of Georgia mention those test scores were inflated by cheating? Yeah, it seems a bit ironic that while the DA was accusing Shani of racketeering using inflated test scores to get money, the state of Georgia was essentially doing exactly the same thing. At any point, did they try to convince you to take a plea deal? Oh, yes, every step of the way. They wanted us to plea out so bad So again, we're facing anywhere between 20 and 50 years, right? People who've never been in any trouble. They said, okay, we'll wipe it away. We'll wipe all those years away. So you go from facing decades in prison to we'll wipe it clean. We will um, expunge your record. All you have to do is say you cheated and, and, and say someone put pressure on you. You had to throw somebody else under the bus. And all you and we will take everything away. They wanted us to do community service, pay a fine, and just say that we cheated and someone put pressure on us, and that that 50-year prison sentence would be gone. And I imagine if they're constantly coming at you for a plea deal, eventually that can that can wear you down. Oh, yeah. A lot of people ended up taking the um, the plea deal because out of 35 people who were indicted, there were only 12 of us that went to trial. Twelve of these teachers refused to take the deal and say they did it. Beverly Hall would make 13, but she was too sick. Turns out Dr. Hall had breast cancer. And the prognosis wasn't promising they decide she's too ill to stand trial. And a week later, Dr. Beverly Hall dies. The woman at the center of this whole thing, dead before she could ever take the stand. So Dr. Hall never had her day in court. She maintained her innocence right to the very end of her life, as her legacy lay in ruins. But on August 14, 2014, 
Shawnee and the other 11 defendants arrived at Fulton County Courthouse for the trial. I equate the trial to a circus. There were repeated calls for mistrial. There were witnesses who recanted their stories. The judge actually stated on the record, perjury is being committed daily here. That is a direct quote from the judge. She's talking about Judge Jerry Baxter, who you heard about at the beginning of each of these two episodes. Although he's definitely a big character and does great numbers on YouTube. I was trying to give everybody one more chance and, you know, probably going to be have tomatoes thrown at me. Uh, Shawnee wasn't impressed. Some of the things that he did was not something that judges should do. I'll just put it to you like that. There was a woman who was told that she could step down from the witness stand and walk around the room to try to identify one of my co-defendants. And so she gets down and starts walking down the aisle. And then the judge calls out to her and says, you're getting cold. So she turns around because she knew she was going the wrong way. The trial, it went on and on. Witness after witness, 12 defendants, eight whole months. The longest trial in Georgia's history and one of the most expensive. Finally, on April 1st, 2015, the jury declared they were ready to give their verdict. Shani was actually at home. At this point, she was very pregnant, a couple of days away from giving birth. And so I was actually asleep on the couch, <laughs> taking a nap. And I got a phone call from my god sister. And she was talking to me as if I already knew And she was saying, like, what does this mean? What does this mean? And she was like, the verdict, the verdict. She had no idea the jury had come to a decision. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Um, And she was just like that, you know, you all were found guilty. And I'm like, what? And I was saying that if I wasn't pregnant, I probably would have passed out. But since I was pregnant, I knew that I had to stay calm. And a week or so later, Judge Baxter was handing out sentences. He sentenced me to a year in prison and five years uh, probation. What? A year in prison, five years probation for supposedly changing first grade kids' results on a test? Another teacher got 20 years. You got to ask the question. Did the punishment really fit the crime? Especially when, in many ways, this story is not about the individual failings of these teachers. But it's more about a school system in crisis in Atlanta and in the rest of the country. Because, actually, cheating wasn't just happening in Atlanta. In the wake of this scandal, Alan Judd and his team at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution decided to look at whether there was cheating in other school districts across America. And what they found was just crazy. Suspicious test scores in over 200 school districts nationwide. 70,000 schools. In Washington, D.C., there were 103 schools flagged for suspiciously high test scores. So, I mean, Beverly Hall, the superintendent, didn't have anything to do with Washington, D.C., shouldn't have anything to do with these other counties. And so my point is that this was a systemic problem. But... What exactly are those systemic problems Shani is talking about? In Atlanta, like in a lot of other urban school districts, 
public schools are majority black and segregated. White kids go to a handful of better performing schools, while a lot of black students are crowded into schools that don't perform so well. Bush's No Child Left Behind Act tried to put pressure on those underperforming public schools with testing, high targets, and competition. I want to begin with disadvantaged children in struggling schools and the federal role in helping them. Their voices are not the loudest in our educational debates, but we owe them the pride and the promise of learning. What ended up happening was the targets became so difficult to meet, teachers resorted to cheating. So, an education policy designed to lift up black students had in the end only served to fail them more than ever before. And in many ways, it also failed the teachers in that system. Teachers who no doubt set out to help their communities, but were forced into this pressure cooker environment. And it's not just the students and the teachers affected, it's also the neighborhoods. Testing and targets lead to schools closing down. You remember that school you heard about at the beginning of the episode, Venetian Hills? Now, it's shut down. And there are many more like it across Atlanta and the country. These school closures are destroying black communities. You have to ask, what happens to these schools in these desirable inner city areas when they close? Developers take them over in the name of urban renewal, which James Baldwin called Negro removal because black people are forced out. Maybe the real cheat in all of this isn't the teachers. It's the system. Shani Robinson maintains her innocence. She maintains that she never changed any of the kids' answers, that she never did anything wrong. How, how has this affected your life and the lives of your colleagues that, have, that were involved in this? We've been in limbo for the past... My son is six years old. I was um, convicted right when he was born. So that's six years of my life that I've been in limbo. We have a criminal record, so we can't really get real jobs. Um, our, you know, our character has been assassinated in the media. Um, I have PTSD. <sighs> Let me get myself together. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's okay. Um, It's it's been a nightmare. Some of my co-defendants are completely broke. You know, like they've been they're they're they've been taken out of their homes. (sighs) I'm sorry, just give me a moment. It's just, it's caused a lot of stress. It's caused a lot of stress. So, yeah. 
Next up on Cheat, we hear a very different story. It's about a young trader from London who allegedly wiped a trillion dollars from the U.S. stock market in the fastest crash in history, all from his parents' bedroom. And then this short Asian guy with a beard, old guy, answers the door and shouts upstairs to his son, who's asleep. You know, Navinda, there's some people here to see you. And Nav, a couple of minutes later, pads down the stairs in his tracksuit bottoms, his hair everywhere, half asleep. Uh, and that's when they read him his rights. Hey, good people, just before we go, don't forget to follow the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get them. And not that you're gonna do it because we ask, but it helps if you leave us a rating and a review as well. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. The producer for this episode is Tom Fuller. Our series editor is Joe Sykes. The executive producer is Tom Koenig. The original idea was developed by Tom Fuller, engineering sound design and scoring by Martin Peralta and Output Music. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah Delarue. And a big thanks to Steve Ackerman, Mark Rivers, Peggy Sutton, Ella McLeod, Dasha Litsitsina, Chris Skinner, and Arlie Adlington. <laughs>